0: Eyes unclouded by hate. Does not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? Hello, everyone. My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C. E. Dorset, and we are continuing our study today on the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. If you would like to read along with me, the book is now in the public domain, and you can do like I'm doing and read along from a version on Project Gutenberg. We will be picking up today with the chapter on crime. And punishment. Starting with the text. And then one of the judges of the city stood forth and said, Speak to us of crime and punishment. And he answered, saying, It is when your spirit goes wandering upon the wind that you alone and unguarded commit a wrong unto others, and therefore unto yourself. And for That wrong committed must you knock and wait a while unheeded at the gates of the blessed. So we're going to get deep in this chapter, and the important thing to note so far is this idea that goes right to the definition of compassion that we operate under, that true compassion is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this seems to pick up on the idea that the death of one person diminishes us all. A crime against one person is a crime against us all. And specifically, if you commit a crime against another, you're actually committing that crime against yourself. And you're going to see this get built out as we continue. And here we go. Like the ocean is your god self, it remains forever undefiled. And like the ether it lifts but the winged. And like the ether it lifts but the winged. That's such a beautiful phrase, sorry. Right. Even like the sun is your god self. It knows not the ways that th- of the mole. Nor seeks it the holes of the serpent, but your god self dwells not alone in your being. Much in you is still man, and much in you is not yet man. But a shapeless pygmy that walks asleep in the midst in the mist, searching for its own awakening. And of the man in you. Would I now speak? For it is he, and not your god self, nor the pygmy in the mist, that knows crime and the punishment of crime. Okay, so first of all, you must realize this book is over a 100 years old. So, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable for us to hear the prophet using the term man to mean all humanity and to alternately use the term pygmy but i I am not one who likes to condemn a story out of its place in time so i am not going to do that i just felt that i should say something before we go on so in this chapter we have the prophet introducing us to this idea of the god self this would be akin to the Hindu concept of Atman, or what we talk about in Christianity as the zal the image of God, that exists in all of us. We were all created in the image of God. This image, <clears throat> this God-self, is, by the reckoning of the Prophet, not what commits the crime. It is the part of us that is not yet human. So if there are parts of us that are human, parts of us that are not yet human, and parts of us that are this God self, this image of God, we concede the basic thesis that the prophet is going to be pushing towards. Our goal is to take the... uh, to use his unfortunate language, the pygmy in the mist, and have him grow up not only to be human, but to conform to the God-self. Let us continue from the text. Oftentimes I have heard you speak of one who commits a wrong, as though he were not one of you, but a stranger unto you, and an intruder upon the world. But I say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise beyond the highest, which is in each one of you, so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest, which is also in you. And as a single leaf turns not yellow, but with the silent knowledge of the whole tree, so the evildoer cannot do wrong without the hidden will of you all. Like a procession, you walk towards your God-self. Okay, now that's a big one. (laughs) Okay, so what he's basically saying here is something that you will hear prophets from most traditions saying, and something that you see repeated in more modern prophets, such as the writings of Dr. King, that, You cannot do wrong without the tacit agreement of society. And I am going to say for sake of the argument here that we're not talking about people who have a psychological compulsion towards crime. Though I would say that even they fit under this definition because if we had a valid psychological mechanism where which we were actively trying to improve society and improve ourselves, such people would be discovered earlier and would be medicated or treated for their psychological conditions before they were able to manifest in a lot of situations. I am one of those people that thinks that basic therapy should be open and Encouraged for everyone, if not almost mandatory through the earlier stages of life, where we often allow children to express their darker natures through bullying and, you know, spiteful actions and excuse it away as children being children. I think that a lot of that could be tamed at a much younger age if we were offering basic psychological help to them at a much younger age. But maybe that's just my own experiences with therapy bleeding into this discussion, but everything else fits into this. A person who is hungry and starving is hungry and starving because our society has decided that the great wealth that we produce is better spent in the bank accounts of the wealthy than feeding the hungry and the starving. The homeless deserve to be homeless rather than put in one of the many homes that go empty every year because some rich person has decided that it would be a good investment for them to have that property and have it remain empty. These are choices that we allow as a society, which do lead to crime because we have decided that tax rates should be low and help to those who cannot afford to eat should not be easily forthcoming. We do as a society tacitly agree that people should be in a state of want. That state will seek remedy, and it will seek whatever appears to be the simplest, easiest route. This is something that I think that you should understand when you're thinking about anything. You should model it like water. Water will always find the easiest route to the ocean. Most of our instincts will find the easiest route to the source of their desire. If someone is hungry and poor and living in fear and not having enough money, the appearance that crime may be the easiest way to get there, in a place where minimum wage jobs do not pay the rent, in a place where jobs may not be common or easy to procure, then crime is the natural state that those energies, those desires will push themselves towards. It's inevitable. And the fact that we choose as a society and as a people not to see that inevitability does speak to our own complicence in the actions of the criminal. They do. And it's something that we, as we learn to be more responsible caretakers for this world and as we work for justice and for the betterment of all peoples we need to start seeing returning to the text you are the way and the wayfarer and when one of you falls down he falls for those behind him a caution against the stumbling stone i And he falls for those ahead of him, who, though faster and sure of foot, yet removed not the stumbling stone. Exactly. When you start seeing that, oh, people at this basic level of income, at this basic quality of life, are more prone to getting active in crime, that points out... A stumbling stone in our society. Anyone under that stone is liable to trip when they reach that place. And yes, some went beyond it, but by going beyond it and not removing it, they have, if you will, made the conscious decision that it's okay for people to fall there. They should be nimble. And agile, like me, and able to jump over or go around. And you actually hear this rhetoric. Especially in the nonsensical statement that people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You you do know that the phrase, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, was coined to show the ludicrousness of the idea. It's kind of like the term meritocracy. It was a word coined to show how bad and stupid the basic idea that it represents was. You cannot pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you think you can, I, I invite you to try this. Get yourself a pair of boots, put them on, grab the straps on each foot, and pull. See how high in the air you get. You won't ever get off the ground. You'll never get off the ground. That's the point of the statement. And so for people to blindly say that people should pick themselves up by their bootstraps, that means that they do not understand the situation that people in need are in. Or worse, they do see it and they want to feel their own superiority rather than acknowledge that others might have a greater need. I grew up white and I was assigned male at birth. That gives me so much more privilege in this world. My grandfather and his father and his father were given land. They my great-great great, great, great? think i got enough greats in there grandfather fought in the civil war on the side of the union and like all union soldiers was offered a homestead and he not only got one he got two because we originally moved out to kansas and after a tornado ate the house he decided that god was telling them they shouldn't live in kansas and relocated to missouri and the government let him give up his claim on the land in, in kansas and claim a new homestead And so that land was given to our family. We, you can say we earned it through war, but we didn't do anything to earn it to deserve it. The dairy that they eventually built on the land was one of the only dairies in the area. So if people wanted milk, cheese, what have you, they had to come to our family to get it. And so that branch of my family became fairly wealthy. And the other side of my family well, they were miners. <laughs> they, they didn't have it so good. In fact, my first ancestor on the other side of the fa- family who came over here came over as an indentured servant. Whereas on the side that eventually became wealthy, he, he had enough money to not only move himself over, but his father and several other members of his family. And they bought an estate in Connecticut when they first moved here. So they had privilege to begin with. And that privilege trickles down. And so we find us ourselves where we are today. Don't ignore the stumbling blocks that are on the ground. Help others to get past them. We'll continue this more after the break. And we're back. I know a lot of people get frustrated with talks about white privilege and, you know, gender privilege, but... It is something very important for us to start to notice, and it's not because of our the color of my ancestors' skin. It has something to do with their nation of origin. The one side of my family came over and were Dutch, and they came over with money to their name, and that money is what trickled down. The other side of my family were Irish and, well, didn't have any money. thus coming over as an indentured servant and had to work for everything that they had and never really produced enough to be able to hand down an inheritance to their children. So when we talk about racial privilege, imagine this, this is my family where I can see both sides of this, the side that had money when they first arrived and the side that didn't who arrived in servitude, but that was only one generation of servitude now, imagine that your family were brought over as slaves and for generations had nothing. See, all that while, while my indentured servitude and earned an income and spread across the country, from Maryland to Indiana, eventually to Missouri, they had... The ability to make money. They had the ability to build something for themselves and for their family. Others didn't. And the long-lasting effects of that will always be with us. I, 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 I just... I, I don't know. It's maybe because I see it so starkly in my own family that it stands out for me. But... And that's with two white branches of the family that had very different starts in this country. I I don't personally understand how it's difficult for others to see. Let us continue from the text. And this also, though the word lie heavy upon your hearts, the murdered is not unaccountable for his own murder, and the robbed is not blameless. In being robbed, the righteous is not innocent of the deeds of the wicked, and the white handed is not clean in the doings of the felon. Yea, the guilty is often the victim of the injured, and still more often, the condemned is the burden bearer for the guiltless and the unblamed. You cannot separate the just from the unjust and the good from the wicked, for they stand together before the face of the sun, even as the black thread and the white are woven together. And when the black thread breaks, the weaver shall look unto the whole cloth, and he shall examine the loom also." This is one of the things that has always astounded me about this book, because having been written over 100 years ago, you see this very modern terminology in here, this very modern idea that you cannot separate one from the other. It's like we, we said, the murdered, this, this is hard to hear, and it's something we don't want to hear, but the, the murdered is not unaccountable for his own murder oh, that sounds horrible. But if you live in a system that allows for gun control and have not done everything to fix that, to bring about a just world where people cannot easily get their hands on weapons, well, it's not to say that you deserved it. Because this is where when we talk about this sort of blame this sort of karmic destiny that comes to us all there there is a sense that well you're blaming the victim where no one's blaming the victim here not even the prophet is blaming the victim here you can see at the bottom that uh, of this passage where he talks about the threads in the loom it's not the fault of the white thread that the black thread broke but when that happens the weaver must examine the black thread, the white thread, and the loom itself. And that's the problem here. So much, not all, not 100% of the crime that is committed in the United States or in any other country is based in some kind of systemic flaw. But a lot of it is. The fact that we do not have valid mental health facilities to check and help people who are suffering from mental illness You know, I look at this in my own family and think about how much I and others in my family suffer from depression and other mental illnesses, and it's expensive to get therapy. I haven't been in therapy for years. I have not been receiving treatment for my depression for years because I can't afford it, and so my depression runs rampant. Now, you take this and go into other forms of mental illness that isn't being treated My depression has the likelihood of harming myself. There are forms of mental illness that increase the likelihood that others will be harmed, and yet we do nothing to help these people. Not only do we do nothing to help these people, we make it easier for them to harm others. We pass laws saying that you cannot discriminate uh, upon people with mental health claims against them. If someone is in a state where they are not allowed to handle their own affairs because of their own mental health problems. They are still allowed to go out and buy a gun. They're still allowed to own a gun. That is a systemic problem. And in that way, the murdered is not blameless, is not unaccountable, Because we live in a system that has not changed. Because the gun lobby has more power than the people. And it's our job as the people to stand up and make it known that we will not support an industry that is supporting murder. I'm not saying that all weapons need to be banned. But... The idea that we don't do background checks, that you don't have to at least prove your mental competence before buying a weapon? Just think about that basic idea there. You could have the most psychotic murderer, and they don't have to prove that they're not a psychotic murderer before they buy a weapon. In fact, they could be adjudicated as such and still be allowed to buy one. And thus we all become complicit in the system that allowed for that murder to take place. The same is true of robbery. So much robbery, so much theft is born out of a systemic inequality that forces people to live in squalor. In the richest nation in the world, we have decided that billionaires' bank accounts are more valuable and more important than the basic needs of society. When you make decisions like that, and even if you vehemently disagree, because those conditions are allowed to exist within the country and in the place where you live, the prophet is reminding us that you cannot be seen as blameless. This is a very hard truth for us to understand and for us to get to, but whenever a thread Breaks. It's important for us to look not only at the thread that broke, but at the threads that didn't, and the loom that they were being woven together in. There are systemic patches that could help with so many forms of crime. We learned from prohibition of alcohol that it breeds crime, and so we legalized alcohol. And yet, we feel ignorant about how that same solution might work for other drugs. Not to say that heroin and cocaine are great things, but you look at how Portugal and other countries are dealing with their drug problems and how they're able to reduce crime through the legalization of the substances, which helps to get rid of the cartels. If our systems are creating the criminals, then we who live in those systems without changing them are responsible for the crimes made in and under that system. Continuing from the text. If any of you would bring to judgment the unfaithful wife, let him also weigh the heart of her husband in scales and measure his soul with measurements and let him who la- i'm sorry and let him who would lash the offender look unto the spirit of the offended and if any of you would punish in the name of righteousness and lay the axe unto the evil tree let him see to its roots and verily he will find the roots of the good and the bad, the fruitful and the fruitless, all intertwined together in the silent heart of the earth, and you judges who would be just. What judgment pronounce you upon him who, through honest, though honest in the flesh, Is yet a thief in spirit? What penalty lay you upon him who slays in the flesh, yet is himself slain in the spirit? And how prosecute you him who in action is a deceiver and an oppressor, yet who also is aggrieved and outraged? This is what we're talking about, this look at the system and how the system actually works. We are told that our struggle in this world is not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but it's against powers and principalities and authorities in high places. It's these systems that we struggle against, these systems that punish unjustly these systems that create suffering and yet are sometimes seen as just and holy and important these are the systems that we rage against these are the systems that we are on this earth and in this world to fight against to struggle against to change returning to the text and how shall you punish those whose remorse is already greater than their misdeeds? Is not remorse the justice which is administered by the very law which you would fain serve? Yet you cannot lay remorse upon the innocent, nor lift it from the heart of the guilty. Unbidden shall it call in the night, that men may wake and gaze upon themselves, and you who would understand justice, how shall you, unless you look upon all deeds in the fullness of light? Only then shall you know that the erect and the fallen are but one man standing in twilight between the night of his pygmy self and the day of his god-self, and that the cornerstone of the temple is not higher than the lowest stone in its foundation. And so in all of these things, we are struggling between our lower selves, which he unfortunately refers to as the pygmy self, and our God self. We're struggling here. And we have to do everything in our power to encourage the good, to Break the systems until they foster the good. To change the systems until they support the world in a way that lifts people up rather than tearing them down. This is the work of the righteous in this world. It is the call to justice. What is required of you, O mortal, but that you love kindness, do justice, and walk humbly before your God? I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really do love this book. If you've liked this episode in the pot and the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate either this episode or the podcast, please do that. That helps me out a bunch that tells the algorithm to share me with more people. If you've got a buck, you can throw my way depending on the app. There'll either be a link. Well, there'll either be a button that says support or in the show notes, there'll be a link that says support on anchor that money goes to me and helps me to continue doing this work. And it's something that I really do enjoy doing. If you have any questions or comments, just download the Anchor app at anchor.fm and send me a voice message. It can be up to one minute long. And I would love to hear from you. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter as Wisdom Cries Out. You can find links to everything that I do over at wisdomscry.com. I hope you're enjoying this. We're in the serious part of the book, and I know it's been a serious couple shows, but eventually... We will get to the other side. And until then, may God bless you and keep you ever growing in wisdom and compassion. Amen.